And for those of you um, who were able to listen to WAVA yesterday at 5 o'clock on Don Crow, uh, the interview that they did of me as a Meet the Pastor went incredibly well. Uh, Don Crow and I have just developed a wonderful friendship. Uh, and if you did listen, you will note that Don Crow said that I speak at congregations on Sundays. And if any congregation would like me to speak, to please let us know. We've already gotten one request uh, for someone to come speak. So... Uh, it's amazing how the little tentacles of the Capitol campaign and the concert are reaching out uh, to the Washington, D.C. area. I would ask that you please keep that in prayer, that many people would find out about Son of David and also find out specifically about the need to reach out to the Jewish people in the Washington, D.C. area uh, with the good news of Messiah. Which reminds me also, there's a need for you to reach out with the good news of Messiah. How many of you have ever heard that if you reap sparingly, you will sow sparingly, but if you reap with abundance, you will sow. If you sow with abundance, you will reap with abundance. That doesn't just um, uh, correspond to giving. It responds to every area of your life. And if you sow generously with your testimony, you will reap generously with your testimony. But if we as members of Son of David congregation sow sparingly with our testimony, we will also reap sparingly. Now, how many of you have ever planted seeds in a garden? Do all the seeds come up? No, but you still plant. And that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to plant seeds of testimony that people you know who may not know Messiah will hear your story And in that story, they might find hope in a dead and dying world. Amen? Amen. We can continue this morning in our trek through the book of Romans. This morning we're in Romans chapter 8, 18 to 30. I'm going to read the whole section, but I want to concentrate on one specific verse, and that'll be verse 28. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Please notice it doesn't say to us. It says in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Oh, by the way, that's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, 
because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so the title of the message this morning is also a question. Does everything happen for a reason? Does everything happen for a reason? Now, I'm, her, I'm sure you've heard people say, everything happens for a reason. Have you ever said it? I think I may have said it too. It sounds almost biblical, doesn't it? But it's not. Bear with me. I'll explain why in just a minute. Now, when people say everything happens for a reason, they mean well. I mean, what they're meaning to say is God takes care of everything in a believer's life. And since God takes care of everything, then nothing happens by chance. And so everything happens for a reason. Everything that happens in your life is all part of God's plan. Well, let me give you this example. Someone who believed this kind of thinking once said to Dr. J. Vernon McGee, quote, I've been studying the Bible, and I believe I am absolutely safe in God's hand. No matter what I do or how dangerous it may be, he's going to protect me. If I stepped out into a busy street against a red light, I would be perfectly safe if my time had not yet come. To which Dr. McGee replied, If you're foolish enough to step out into traffic against a red light at the rush hour, brother, your time has come. (laughs) I also once saw this post on Facebook which said, Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes it's because you're stupid and make bad decisions. (laughs) Now the phrase, everything happens for a reason, is a relatively harmless phrase until you run into someone who thinks it's a good thing to say at a funeral. This is a true story, by the way, the story of a woman who was leaving an evening church service and fell down the flight of steps outside the church and broke her hip. She had hip surgery, but instead of healing, she got progressively worse until a few short days later, she actually passed away. And at the visitation, the preacher stood beside the bereaved husband, and many people came up to the man who'd lost his wife to offer their sympathies. Some tried to console the husband. God must have had a plan for this, so accept it. Another said, it was God's will and we must live by it. Still another said, somehow God planned this to test your faith. Still another said, there's a silver lining in every cloud. You will find God's reason behind this eventually. Do you know what each of these friends was saying? They were saying everything happens for a reason. And that almost sounds pious until you consider the flip side of their meaning. Your wife died because God had planned for her to die. Does that sound like a good thing to tell someone? Of course not. 
And the preacher left that funeral home as angry as can be. He raged against their babbling, as he put it. And he went to the study and rewrote the beginning of his funeral sermon. And the next day he began his message with these words. My God does not push old ladies down church steps. Then he proceeded to explain that God can't be blamed or accused for all the brokenness in this world. If God is the author of death, how? How can he be at the same time the author of life, which is shown through the resurrection of our Messiah? Is God the God of the living, or is he the God of the dead? You can't have it both ways. But now the question is this. How did people arrive at this kind of thinking? How could they possibly come to the kind of theology that would imply that God would push little old ladies down church steps? Well, back when I attended university, I took several classes in philosophy. This was mostly at George Washington University. Of all the things I learned in those classes, the one concept that made the most lasting impression on me was explained to me by an assistant professor who was teaching intro to philosophy. He told me that the best way to understand how people think something through is to compare it to a mathematical equation. He explained that most people reason like this. Proposition one, A equals B. Proposition two, B equals C. Therefore, conclusion, A must equal C. And the professor then explained that by the time people have arrived at their conclusion, it's hard to shake their convictions because they believe that the conclusion is the logical outcome of the propositions they started with. So, in order to point out where their conclusions are wrong, you need to show them where one or more of their propositions are faulty. And when it comes to the everything happens for a reason mentality, the reasoning goes like this. Proposition A, God has a plan for our lives. True. Proposition B, God has made various promises to us, such as he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. That's also true. Therefore, Since God has made us that promise, and God has a plan for us, the only logical conclusion they reason is, God has and will protect us in all things. And therefore, anything that happens to us is part of his plan for our lives. Now the problem is this. This thinking is so close to true scriptural thinking that it actually makes sense. Kinda. (laughs) So let's examine each of the propositions just for a few moments. First, It is true that God has a plan for your life. One of my favorite passages in scriptures is Ephesians 2, verse 10. And it tells us that once we become believers, quote, we are God's handiwork created in Messiah Yeshua to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has things prepared for you and I to do. He has a plan for our lives a purpose for us to accomplish. And once we accept that, that he has a plan for our lives, and once we believe that there's a purpose for us to accomplish, once we have faith that this is what God has in mind for us, then we're capable of doing all kinds of things. 
There was a recent study done by researchers at Stanford University. They tested 900 participants, which is a pretty large sampling size. And they found, listen to this, that just thinking about God has a powerful impact on people's willingness to seek out and take risks. Why? Because they view God as providing security against potential negative outcomes. In other words, even for people who weren't driven by faith, who were simply thinking about God, there was a belief that God was there for them. And therefore, since he was there, they felt more willing to take certain risks in life that they wouldn't ordinarily have considered. Years ago, I heard someone ask, what would you do if you believed that you could not fail? Well, that study from Stanford essentially was saying that if you believe God approves of that dream, then you're more likely to take a shot at doing it. Why? Because you believe God will have your back. But in Scripture, God does you one better. In Scripture, God essentially says, not only will, believe, will believing I've got your back make you more comfort, confident, but if what you plan to do is in my will, well... I will have your back. I will be there for you. You see, our faith in God's faithfulness makes us live our lives in an expectation of the fact that he has a plan for our lives and that it's going to be something exciting. It's kind of like children sitting around the Christmas tree. See, I had to bring in Christmas sometime, this message, because it's coming up this coming week. It's kind of like children sitting around the Christmas tree on Christmas morning. All those gifts lie under the tree, and they can't see what's inside the gifts, but they just know that it's going to be something cool and great. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 5, 7, God tells us as believers, we live by faith and not by sight. And so when we do this right... When we live as those who believe God has a plan for our lives, when we live as those who believe that God has the power to put that plan into effect, and when we step out in faith and do things that just don't make any sense, then we live our lives looking for something we can't see. We live by faith, not by sight. Or another way of saying it is this, an attitude of faith will, will um, succeed even in the face of facts. An attitude of faith will succeed even in the face of facts. The great men and women of Scripture had the attitude that God had a plan, and they obeyed. Once they accepted that God had a plan and that God had the power to make it work, nothing else mattered. When Moses faced the might of Egypt, what did he have in his hand? A shepherd's staff. Really? That's all he had? That shouldn't have worked, should it? But it did. When David faced Goliath, what did he have in his hand? A sling and some rocks. Are you kidding me? That's all he had? That shouldn't have worked, but it did. When Gideon and his 300 soldiers faced an army of 135,000 men, what did they have in their hands? Trumpets and torches. That's it? That's all they had? That shouldn't have worked, but it did. Those things shouldn't have worked. The enemy was bigger than they were. The enemy was stronger than they were. But the God of those faith-filled people was stronger than their enemy. And because of their attitude, they believed God had a plan. They believed that God had the power to back that plan, and they became victorious. So when you and I believe that God has a plan for our lives, and that he has the power to back that plan with his power, if that plan is according to the will of God... Dear ones, we just can't lose. 
Now, the fact that God has a plan for your life goes hand in hand with the fact that God has given you all kinds of promises. The Bible is filled with thousands of promises that God has made. I could preach for years just on the promises that God has made you and me. And one of the most famous and beloved of these promises is found in our text this morning. We know that all things, that in all things, God works together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. God will work for the good of those who love him. And in how many things will God work for the good of those who love him? In all things. Almost sounds like everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? Everything happens for a purpose. But now let's ask a couple of questions. Is this verse saying that all things are good? No, it doesn't say it. Is this verse saying that God caused all things to happen in your life? Again, no, that's not what it says. But what it is saying is this. It doesn't make any difference whether it's good or bad or God caused it or not. It doesn't matter if what happened in your life was caused by God or not. It doesn't matter if what has happened in your life is a good thing or not. No matter what happened in your life, you serve a big God who has big plans for your life. And no matter why something has happened in your life, all things, good things, bad things, things caused by God, things not caused by God, All things will work together for good for you. And so I state categorically, not everything in this world happens for a reason. Unless you're going to say that the reason is that people are sometimes stupid and make bad decisions. I mean, remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel offer a sacrifice to God. God rejects Cain's offering. How does Cain respond to his his rejection? He gets angry and kills his brother. Was that God's will? Did God cause that to happen? Let's fast forward a few centuries to the days of Moses. The Israelites come to the very border of the promised land. They send in 12 spies to scout out the land. Two were good, 10 were bad. The two faith-filled men came back and said that the land was everything God had promised, and all they had to do was go in and take it. But the other 10 were afraid. They said they were like grasshoppers in comparison to the giants in the land. And their fear spread throughout the camp, and the people refused to go into the land. Was that God's will that they would refuse to go in? Did God cause that to happen? By the way, a few centuries later, we read about a great king of Israel named David. David sees the wife of Uriah bathing on a nearby rooftop and sins by having her come over to his palace and commits adultery with her. Was that God's will? Did God cause that to happen? No, no. Sometimes the reason bad things happen to us is that people do stupid things. Sometimes the reasons bad things happen is because others make bad decisions. Sometimes it's because the people around us are sinners. They do simple things. Or sometimes, sometimes the reason things happen to us is simply we live in a dead and dying and fallen world. But God says it doesn't matter why something happened. I can make all things work together for good in your life if you love me and are called according to my purpose. If you love me and are called according to my purpose. I believe it helps to realize that Romans 8.28 isn't just one verse that's out in the middle of nowhere. 
It's part of a whole chapter of things that God wants us to see and understand. And the backdrop for this promise that we just read is found in Romans 8, 17, and 18. Quote, Now if we are children, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Messiah. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And I believe that what these two verses are saying is this. As a believer, you're going to suffer. Or as Yeshua said, in this world, you will have trouble. And that suffering isn't always going to be part of God's plan for our lives. I mean, sometimes we'll suffer because we've sinned and God needs to correct us. But other times, our suffering will happen simply because we live in a fallen world. Or because we live among sinful people that won't like us. Not everything that happens, happens because it's God's plan for our lives. That everything happens for a reason mindset, listen, ends up blaming God for stuff he doesn't do. He doesn't push little old ladies down staircases. He doesn't make us make bad choices for ourselves. He doesn't cause bad people to do bad things. God doesn't do stuff like that. God doesn't make it so that everything happens for a reason. But what God does is he makes everything that does happen have a reason. Let me repeat that. God doesn't make it so that everything happens for a reason. But what God does do is he makes everything that does happen have a reason. When you and I act in faith, when you and I commit our lives to him, when you and I bathe what we do in prayer, when we humble ourselves in his presence, then God makes everything that does happen to have a reason. What happens in our lives will mean something because God will make it mean something. One of the best illustrations I can think of to help us understand this concept also comes from Scripture. The Bible tells us about one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. His name was David. David was a great king, a man after God's own heart. He was a righteous man. In fact, you can tell the kind of righteousness he had by reading the book of Psalms, of which he was the majority author. And he became a great warrior. He became a great leader. Not only did he face and kill Goliath, but even after he became king, he led the armies of Israel against the enemies of Israel. But then, one day, David didn't go to war with his armies. He stayed home to watch the bed and bath channel on the rooftop that was across the way. He saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop, and he wanted her. So he sent for her. And he slept with her, and he had a good time. In fact, you get the impression he had several nights of pleasure with her. But one day, Bathsheba says, David, honey, I'm pregnant. And now David's got a problem. Bathsheba is a married woman. And if it's found out that he's the father of her child, he would lose his prestige as a king. She'd lose her life because they'd stone her to death. So David decides on a plan. All this time... Her husband has been on the war front. He's not slept with her. So David sends for Uriah, you know the story, to come back to Jerusalem to be a messenger for him. And while Uriah is in Jerusalem, David suggests that he go to spend some time with his own wife. 
but Uriah is a righteous man, more righteous than David at the time. And he refuses to go to his wife or in his wife because he feels it would be unfair to his brothers in arms if he should enjoy the pleasures of home while they are out still suffering on the battlefront. And so what does Uriah do? He literally sleeps at the door of the palace. Now things are getting serious. So David sends Uriah back to his general with sealed orders. And what are the orders? The general was to put Uriah at the front where the battle was the thickest. And when the time was right, the general was to draw back all of the other soldiers and leave Uriah to die. And that's what they did. And Uriah died. So David has succeeded in covering his tracks. No one will ever know that he and Bathsheba had committed adultery. And now he's free to take her as his wife. He's gotten away with it. Who's there? At the door was a prophet of God named Nathan. And Nathan had urgent news for the king. He told David that there had been a poor man who had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a child to him. But next door to that poor man was a wealthy farmer who had a friend come and visit. And even though this rich man had sheep and cattle of his own, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. And the Bible says, quote, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. 2 Samuel 12, 3 to 6. And then Nathan spoke some of the most powerful words ever spoken. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. And Nathan told David that the child would die and that the sword would not depart from his house because of the evil that he had done in the eyes of God. David had been stupid. David made a bad choice, but then David made a different choice. And unlike many of the other kings in the Hebrew scriptures, David humbled himself under the hand of God. He repented of his sins. In fact, he wrote an entire psalm dedicated to asking God for God's forgiveness for this evil thing he had done. Some of the words of Psalm 51 go like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. When David sinned with Bathsheba and when David had Uriah, her husband, killed because of his lust for sex and power, he had been sinful and he'd made a bad decision. But God took what David had done, which was evil. 
He took that which David had done, which was not a good thing, and he made it so that even this evil thing could be turned to good. You see, because David humbled himself before God, because David stopped making excuses and hiding his sin, because David repented and changed his life, God showed himself faithful and made it so that all things worked together for good. Even these bad things, even these things God did not create, all things worked together for good for those who loved God and are called according to his purposes. Do you believe that? That wasn't very strong. Do you believe that? Does anybody know who Solomon's mama was? Bathsheba. Do you see what God did there? He took the evil that David had done, and because David repented of that evil, God made all things work together for good. So that even this second child of David and Bathsheba became a king of Israel, a king who stood for God. Dear ones, the point is this. We all mess up. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all broken people who do things we just as soon forget. Not everything we've done was done for a reason. But God can take that which we've done and make it have a reason. He can take what we've messed up and make it valuable. But first, we must give those things to him. And the first thing that we must give him is ourselves. Is ourselves. Can I have a show of hands of anyone here this morning who has never messed up? We'll pray for you after the service. We've all messed up. I've messed up. I haven't messed up to the extent of King David, but I've messed up. All God wants from us is us. In honesty, us. In truth, us. In transparency, us. All he wants us to do is to own up to him for the mistakes that we've made. Because when we sin, no matter what we do, the sin is against God first and foremost. And the greatest sin that we have to live with is the sin that we were born with. That's the sin of Adam which separated us from God. But God still wants us. And the only way he can have us is if we will give ourselves to him by acknowledging the gift he gave us, the sacrificial death of his firstborn and only son, Yeshua. And so I'm reminded this morning that if there's anyone here who has never accepted Yeshua as their life, if there's anyone here who at one time in their lives has messed up but has not claimed Yeshua as their forgiveness, if there's anyone here this morning who has never totally given themselves to the Lord, what a wonderful morning to do it. Saturday morning, December 22nd, 2018. For someone or ones in this sanctuary this morning, this could be the day of your salvation. This could be the day 
that you are a co-heir with all the sons and daughters of God, with King David and with Messiah himself. And so I'm going to ask that if anyone here this morning has never received Yeshua as their personal Savior, if you would right now, in, in the midst of people who love you dearly, if you would just stand up and say, I want life in Yeshua. Is there anyone here this morning who needs to claim that salvation? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of your word, both the written word and the living word. We thank you for your unending, never-failing love. We thank you, Lord, that no matter how we mess things up, if we are called according to your will and according to your purposes, you can take the mess and make it beautiful. You can take the lemons and make lemonade. You can take anything that we do, bad, indifferent, or anything else, and turn it toward a kingdom endeavor. If we give ourselves to you, if we are called according to your purposes, and if we submit to your will in our lives. It's my prayer for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that that would be our mantra, that that would be the guiding force of our lives, to submit to your will so that we might know the plans that you have for our life, that we might make an impact on your kingdom, not because you need us to, but because you want us to. And all this I pray in your son's precious and holy name. Let us all say together, amen. Would you please stand with me for the benediction? Oh, my goodness, we have a visitor. Tina? Zach? How many people think God does not work miracles? Let me, let me tell you a quick story. Um, the day that Christine um, had the brain bleed, uh, Joseph was on call and was supposed to be at the hospital. He never got a call that day. And so he was home and able to call 911 so they could rush her to the hospital. Oh, by the way, the hospital that she was rushed to was the hospital where Joseph works. Oh, by the way, the surgery that Christine needed was the surgery that Joseph would assist the surgeons with. Oh, by the way, Joseph's favorite surgeons and assistants just happened to be on call that day. And oh, by the way, there were some doctors who thought that Christine would not make it. Hello. Hello.
Did you want to say something to everybody? There were four. Charlie, get pictures. Four falls at the hospital where I was. Only one at the hospital that Tina visited. And Joseph said, That's it. And I agreed. So I'm home now. Amen. 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 Not, not, not often that I don't know what to say. What did you say, Christine? There's Joseph in the back. Yeah, Joseph's in the back. Okay. Come on up, Joseph. Come on up here. Now, to those of you who don't get here at 9.15 and 9.30 in the morning, I want you to know that the whole time that Christine was in the hospital and then in the rehabilitation centers, there would be Joseph showing up at 9.15 or 9.30, sticking his tithe check in the offering box and then going to take care of his wife. That's the kind of family this is. That's the kind of man that Joseph is. So we're going to sing this ironic benediction, and we're all going to sing it to you, okay? May the Lord, may the Lord bless and keep you. May his grace and his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and give you peace. Yivarecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Yair Adonai panave lecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panave lecha v'yaseim lecha shalom v'yaseim lecha shalom This is the way you shall be blessed. From day to day, he'll be your rest. This is the way you shall be blessed. From day to day, he'll be your rest. May the Lord May the Lord bless and keep you. May his grace and his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, and give you peace, and give you peace. And give you peace. Abba Father, thank you for the, the recovery so far of our sister Christine. Lord, would you continue to confound the doctors and the therapists by making her complete recovery sooner rather than later? Thank you that we get to see her, to praise you with her in our midst. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.